The Open Source Creative Podcast, Episode 1, Use Version Control. This is the Open Source Creative Podcast, a podcast where I ramble on about creativity, process, and open source software during my morning commute. In this episode, I talk about version control, a real, really sexy topic, and uh, using it in creative projects in a rant, and I, I rant a little bit uh, about why it's a good idea for everyone to do. Also, the podcast is now officially also available on iTunes, so you can get it there too if that's more convenient than directly subscribing to the RSS feed on my site, monsterjaffaguns.com slash podcast. Yeah, just if you want to drop by. Oh, we're going to toast marshmallows, are we? But the... Source Creative Podcast. I'm Jason Van Gumster, your host and driver uh, on this first actual episode of the Creative, the Open Source Creative Podcast. Uh, the previous one was the pilot, therefore zero. So this is this is the first real deal. Uh, I tweeted about the podcast a little bit last week when I when I first posted it, um, so for those of you who have stumbled across it and saw that it was posted, thank you so much for downloading it and, and whatnot, and for those of you who uh, pushed it to Reddit, thanks for mentioning that. Uh, also, I think I read a comment on there, uh, I'm, if you're waiting to hear me crash while talking, it's... Uh, <laughs> That's that's let's let's try to avoid that. I mean, though, if you know, if you're entertained by by waiting for a car crash to happen, if you're just you know entertained by that sort of thing, then please, please continue to listen. Um, I'm I'm sure that one day, sometime in the distant, hopefully distant future, uh, maybe maybe I will get into a car accident. But in the meantime, listen close, and and you know maybe you'll enjoy listening and forget that I'm driving my car. In any case, uh, I just wanted to yeah thank everybody for for, uh, for putting that out there. Sorry for for the when I my my uh, the URL to the podcast sort of flipped and flopped a little bit when I was uh, doing that. So I apologize for that. I had done some updates to my website and forgot that I accidentally nuked my permalinks and I had to go and rebuild and fix all those. But yeah, so in any case, I'm pretty happy with it. Happy enough to do a do a start to it and do a real episode. So yeah, here here we go. We're going to start off with, with some news. Some interesting things that have happened in the uh, creative and open source realms of things. Or just stuff I feel like talking about. Uh, in particular, last week, uh, maybe a little bit before last week, the Nox Renderer, N-O-X, was released as open source. So... That was done by Evermotion. You can go check it out if you want to. I'll put the link to it in the show notes and whatnot. A uh, little cagey about about that though, because it really 
the way that the the, pre, the announcement for it sounded, it sounded a lot less like, hey, we're open sourcing our project here and you can become you know part of it and participate and here's our version control and history and blah, 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 blah. And it was a lot more like, hi, here's a code dump. We're not really going to develop this anymore. Now, whether or not that was that is the case or whether or not they sort of wanted to do a get out early sort of methodology and, and these other things like a proper bug tracker and uh, version control and all that stuff uh, is coming is going to be forthcoming we'll just have to wait and see but right now it's not looking super promising the renderer itself is fantastic it's a nice renderer and uh, it's a uh, yeah it should be should be a nice little addition to, to folks suite if you want to do ray trace rendering uh, it has a nice blender plug-in so it's, it's, at the very least it's worth checking out um, I'm not sure you know what sort of from from like a pilfering code standpoint that that's always one of those things where it's it's not likely to be something that you can say oh I want to take this take this exact line of code pull it out of Knox and push it into cycles just because they're you know they have they have subtly different designs and, and whatnot and it's you know you can t pull out techniques but really using the raw source code is probably not going to be a, uh, a possibility so from the development standpoint it's a little uh, little curious from a user standpoint you know one more one more free and open source renderer out there that that, that we can play with and use so good news there uh, GIMP 2.8 had a actually <laughs> GIMP 2.8 had a, a a pair of um, bug fix releases. One was uh, 2.8.12, and then the next day they released 2.8.14 because there's a, a library re revision they they forgot to update in there. So yeah, they had, they had two releases in one week, which was really kind of cool. Again, no new features on it. It's all bug fixes and whatnot. You can check the GIMP uh, news file for a proper change log of everything that, that went into it. Um, hopefully, there's, they'll be rolling out the... should be 2.10, but I'm not sure when that's actually going to happen. I'm looking forward to it, though. See the, the new Gaggle integration and all the fun stuff that's coming down the pipe on that one. In the meantime, we still have the stable version of GIMP and Krita and MyPaint and those apps, so that's always... A great thing. I stumbled across another app or another open source tool. Since you know this is my first podcast and my only my well, we'll say my my, my first real episode of my first podcast. Uh, I was investigating a lot of means of taking podcasts that I record on my mobile device, in this case my tablet, and getting it shipped and ready for delivery. On, on the website so that, you know, it can be consumed by everybody and, and you know, the, the feed can be properly formatted for iTunes. There's a tool I stumbled across called Podcast Gen. It's at pod, or pod, sorry, Podcast Generator, I guess, but it's at podcastgen.sourceforge.net. And it's actually a pretty cool tool. I'm, I'm actually not using it, um, but it's it's worth checking out if you... If you don't want to go through the hassle or, or headache of, for instance, setting up WordPress and, and getting the right plugins for WordPress and a whole bunch of other things set up for it. This is a, is a complete package that basically 
you record on your phone or your tablet, uh, and you have an app, and you take your recording, and you push it to your website, and it's written in PHP, and, and boom, you're done. And you have your properly formatted RSS feeds and, and all those things. So if, if you're looking for a, a relatively low-hassle way of getting in, into it, it's, it seems to be pretty well done, so it's worth taking a look at. I'm, I'm not using it, but that's mostly because I'm using WordPress and I have a bunch of other things on my site that I want to do. So I, I needed a slightly more heavy-handed solution than, than what Podcast Generator gave me. So, yeah, that's the, uh, that's, that's the news as far as I know it. Oh, there is one other little bit. I spent this last week, for anyone who doesn't know, I, I live in the Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia, in case there happen to be other Atlantas in the world. Um, and around this time of year, you know, it's... Dragon Con season. Dragon Con, for those of you who aren't aware, is a it's a con for um, comics and film and animation and mostly a way for for you know fans to uh, flaunt their fandom and um, see the people responsible for the things that they're fans of: voice actors, actors, animators, comic book creators, etc. So I went to Dragon Con. I spent. Four, well, three of the four days that the, the conference was active, I was there. I was there on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And um, I didn't sleep a whole lot that weekend. So those of you who are also following along on the 30-day uh, modeling challenge, you might have noticed that uh, for a couple days there, I, I slacked off there. I, I modeled a plate and a chain and a bolt. There's <laughs> things that, you know, five little five, ten-minute modeling jobs because I uh, was at the conference I was out from like 9 in the morning 8.30 in the morning until 12.30 the next morning uh, so I didn't get a whole lot of sleep and therefore I didn't have a whole lot of time for working on those models but I think I redeemed myself on Monday with the uh, with the, the fun little sort of freestyle gorilla that was, that was a lot of fun to do in any case, I was at Dragon Con, and I, I've come to realize that... See, normally, this, Dragon Con's not the type of con I, I've typically gone to. It's actually my first con of this sort that I've ever been to. Um, I, I typically attend more technical, I guess, technical conferences or conferences that are more for content creators than the content consumers, if you want to take the most sort of sterile description of it. So... You know, I'll typically go to SIGGRAPH and GDC and uh, the Blender Conference and those sort of things. So this, this is a, a new experience for me on that. And of course, I, I spent my time on the various tracks of, of the con that were for people who, who make stuff. So I was in the, the filmmaking and the podcasting and uh, the, the writing tracks predominantly. Uh, though I did, I did go to a couple of the panels that the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the, the EFF, were, were holding. So... Which is a really weird venue for them. I, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure why the EFF is at Dragon Con. I'm sure there's a real rational reason for it. I just don't know what it is. But it was good to see that, it was good to see that they were there. And, and the panels that they put on were all very interesting and, and whatnot. So in any case, I think that uh, while, I, while I did get my money's worth of it out of Dragon Con, I don't think I'll be... I think the next time I go to 
Dragon Con specifically or any sort of conference that's that's similar to it. I don't think I'll be going to them until uh, I'm selling something at them. Probably. We'll see. Who knows? Maybe maybe stuff like that changes. Or maybe I'll change. Ooh. So, moving on to the, the main topic of, of today's podcast. Uh, I'm going to talk about version control. Yes, yes. The, the fantastically sexy topic of version control. That's what I'm starting off my my, my podcast on, on using open source tools and creativity on. I'm talking version control. And I mean, yeah, it, it, it can be a very sterile kind of topic, but, but hear me out here. I'll, since I'm talking about creative content that we're, that, that's being made, and with open source specifically, we're, we're talking digital content, right? And digital content is data. And if you don't care about your data, you don't care about your work. That That's just the way that I look at it. So um, that means backups. That means having a raid on your on your workstation that you're that you're working on. Uh, means offsite backups, and, and of course it means version control. When I say version control, I don't mean just appending a one, you know, take one, take two, or 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 uh, you know, putting numbers at the end of, of of files when you get to a point where you don't want to sort of you're afraid to go back on it. And you want to save that state. I mean that works. But you're gonna, you know, you see your your working directories fill up really quickly with a bunch of numbered files that don't mean a whole lot to you. They don't have a, they don't necessarily have a lot of context or, in the case of virtual metadata, saying that you know this was this was the change that I made to this file or, or or those sort of things. You don't you don't have any of that. And worse, if you end up collaborating with somebody, then you just run into this giant train wreck worth of of files floating all over the place you don't know who worked on what last and what the it it's a train wreck don't do it if you're using if you're not using any sort of version control for uh for your creative projects you're i i might go so far as to say you're doing it wrong i mean and, and there there are a lot of and i'm not even just talking well i'll get to that in a second but there, there, there are a lot of solutions out there for it, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the open source ones. But I mean, let me let me back up a second. I'm not just talking about big projects or collaborative projects or just collaborative projects. I'm talking about, you know, even even the small projects that you do. If it's not just a one-off, it's something that you're going to be devoting a little bit of time to. You want to have some kind of versioning on it. That way, you know, if you want to try and experiment, you can always back out to, to the last point you were sure that you had something that worked right. Or if you want to sort of re-examine your process and see see where, where you did something different, you can look through the history and, and uh, you know, take a look at that so you can, you know, become more efficient, become faster, and ultimately become better. But version control is a good idea, full stop. You should be doing it. You should be using it. And for the projects that I do, I typically I shoehorn using version control systems that, that are typically used for source code development. So a long time ago, I started off doing this. I was using Subversion, which is actually not a bad solution. Subversion is is pretty fantastic, especially when when before Subversion, all you had was C, was CVS, and that was that was horrible. I, well, CVS is better than nothing, but Subversion is way better than CVS. 
the problems with Subversion, however, is that you need to have a server set up. You need to have a central place repository to put all your files on. Now, the upside to that is that that means your files are automatically in two places, which means that you have redundancy, you have backup, and you have those things, which is, which is highly recommended and fantastic and great things. But, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're not working collaboratively, it's, it's, there's a lot of overhead in using Subversion and setting up the server and, and getting that stuff that, that is, is somewhat painful. It's not ideal, especially if you're, if you're, you know, if you're a one-man shop or, or something like that. Your other two options primarily are going to be Git. Well, you can do Git, you can do Bazaar, uh, you can do Mercurial. Bazaar was an interesting one, like, and I've, I've toyed back and forth with using that one for a while, but I'm, I'm reasonably sure in terms of, of the version control debate, Bazaar is kind of lost. <laughs> it's, it just doesn't have the popularity of the tool set's not, I mean, the tool set's robust and modern and stuff, but it's just, it doesn't, it seems not to be uh, as maintained as much anymore, or as far as popularity goes, this is the bigger issue. Bazaar just doesn't have the the popularity of, of Mercurial or Git. And between Mercurial and Git, I actually, I've landed on using Mercurial for the majority of my projects. And period, periodically, I'll, I'll find a need where, where a project demands that I use Git. For instance, if I'm working on a plugin or something that, that I'm going to ultimately host on GitHub, then eh, Git kind of becomes a requirement. But I, I do enjoy Mercurial, and one of the reasons I do like Mercurial is when I'm using a uh, when I'm doing collaborative work with somebody else a lot of the time I might be doing collaborative work with people in the Windows environment yes even if you're if you're if your tools are open source that doesn't mean everyone else's tools are open source so on the Windows side of things the the git git can be a little bit sprawling <laughs> and uh Mercurial, on the other hand, has Tortoise HG, which is a very good uh, interface for working with Mercurial, especially in the Windows environment. But even if you happen to be in Linux, you can run Tortoise HG in Linux and get a pretty good, you know, means of, of visually managing your the versions on, on a particular project. And the other thing is that it's just compared to, say, Subversion, it's really convenient because Git and Mercurial are distributed version control systems. What this means is, uh, for those of you who are, again, creatives and, and not necessarily well-versed in code or those sort of things, so let me let me back up a second and, and explain version control for, for people. This moment of version control explanation brought to you by me. Version control basically works like this. Rather than go through the hassle of work on a file till you get to a point, uh, sort of a point of no return, save that as, you know, working file dot one, then you work on, then you work on working, then you say, then you save a new one, working file dot two, and work on that one. And so if you screw up working file dot two, working dot file, working file dot one is your safe one, right? That works if you're doing it manually, but it's, it's, it's just going to clutter up your work directory with a bunch of files that ultimately you're not going to use. So what version control does is it provides a system that, that gives you that same sort of functionality, but you only have one file name, and then with that file, there's a history associated with it. So you can, what's, you can commit 
So you make a change to the file, recognizes that a change has been made to it, you commit those changes, and when you commit those changes, you, you, you attach a message to it that says, I changed this file, I, I, I changed my character's hair to blue, or I, uh, you know, the, the, the corners on this graphic change from, from hard corners to rounded corners, or those sort of things. Those are the you know, sort of notes you put in there so that when you look at the history, of that file, every file has a history, you can actually go through and say, oh, okay, so those are the changes that I made there. And, you know, if then, once you make the commit, you work on the same file. You're still working on the same file. And then you, you know, you realize that, oh, you know, I, I fucked something up, I, I stepped on my own toes, I, I deleted everything in my file and saved it. And, you know, and then close the, close whatever program I was working on so, you, so undo doesn't work, right? Normally, you might be screwed then, but then you can just roll back to the previous revision and you're good to go. Of course, this requires a little bit of dedication, we'll say, on, on your behalf, where when you get to a place that, that you know, you're comfortable with the work being, you do make a commit. You do do a push. Well, not a push. You do a commit and and, and sort of lock that in. If, you, if you're if you're a gamer, think of it as a save state, right? It's a it's a save state for your project. That's the place that no matter where you go or what you experiment with moving forward, you at least can go back to there. When you do it with Subversion, when you do a commit, that actually takes all your the the, the updated file and uploads it to wherever the server is and that's where it gets stored and saved and you can connect to the server from multiple different computers and check out those changes and and do those sorts of things the problem of course is what i've already said about the the overhead of that with mercurial and git uh you have a distributed version control system which means that there's not a central server there's not a central repository unless you explicitly sort of set one up that way. That means I can go into any directory in my projects uh, directory, so any of my projects, and just type in hg space init, and bam, I, I've, I've initiated you know a working repository for, for my project, and I can start adding files to it and committing them. So yeah, that's really, really useful. And I'll put some notes on some additional notes in the show notes about workflows and where you can get these things and install them and work with them. But yeah, I can't I can't overemphasize the value of version control. How many times has just completely saved my ass in the middle of a project? A couple sort of things, caveats if you will, some some things worth noting when it comes to version control. However, and that's that. Uh, Typically speaking, version control doesn't work as great on binary files. When I say binary files, I mean images, .blend files if you're using Blender, uh, even OpenOffice files, unless you explicitly save it as their flat XML. It's a binary file format, which is, I mean, the advantage there is that the file is actually smaller. The disadvantage is it's harder to see a, 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 a diff between the two files. So if you take two files, Two text files, for instance, and you do a what's called a diff between them. You can see the changes between the two files. Now, if if the files are completely different, this is going to be useless to you. But if one file is roughly the same as another file, except all the letter J's are replaced with the number seven, right? 
then those changes you can see by doing a diff. But diff diffing is is something that works best in text files. In creative projects, we're not typically working with with flat text. With uh, SVG files in Inkscape, yeah, you, you're 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 going to see those there, and there's there's some advantage there though. Even in that case, the XML can can restructure itself, and useful diffs are sometimes a little harder to find when you're dealing with XML. And so, so version control systems don't necessarily work as well with binary files. You can't do diffs uh, as well. And the deltas, one of the nice things about version control systems is that from one revision to the next, they only really store the changes. So it's it's pretty efficient in terms of data storage. Well, if if you have a binary file. It's sort of a, a layer of obfuscation. It, it, it's harder for the version control system to understand what changes you made between files because it can't because it, because it can't read them because they're not text files. So there's some complication on that. Mercurial and Git and, and even Subversion to a lesser degree aren't horrible when it comes to that last topic about sort of the, the deltas. They're, they're, there's even if you're using binary files, unless you get really 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 large with the files. They're not going to be too inefficient in terms of keeping the versioning, so you don't have to worry about that too much. And even then, Mercurial will, will warn you about when it thinks your your files are going to be too big. Uh, of course, in my case, oftentimes I just happily ignore that. As long as I've got my versions, I'm 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 pretty not pretty set. That said, one of the things that sort of my if if I had a wish list, and I do, one of the things on that wish list is. Applications giving more granular access to uh, to version control systems. So, you know, this gets into the the wouldn't it be nice scenario of things. And I've I've actually got a a long sort of standing Blender add-on. Specifically, I'll use Blender as an, as my example, but you can think about this for other things as well. I've I've actually written the the skeleton and the basics on a of an add-on for blender that gives a version control system a little bit more finer granularity so you know if if i have a character rig and i i version it you know i, I put it in my, my repository and it has a version of it it'd be nice that between revisions if i only change say a material setting from one revision to the next that's the only change in the file then it'd be nice to, to be able to, you know, have some form of doing a diff between the two of those. And uh, I've actually written a Blender add-on that I've, I've called the Blender Workbench that it's not released yet because um, it has, I still have a lot of work that I feel I need to do on it. But what it does is takes the entire Blender file and anything that's a binary blob, so I'll say or, or best stored as a binary blob. So I'll say images, uh, image, sorry, image, images, image textures, armatures, mesh data, that kind of stuff. Currently, it's 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 not particularly useful to have that in text form anyway. That's going to be better off as a binary blob. So I'll I'll actually what my script does is tears the Blender file apart, takes any of those binary blobs and dumps them to whatever their native format is going to be. So if it's mesh data, it's going to dump it to a smaller blend file. If it's a texture data, then it will dump it to uh, an image file, right? Unless it's procedural, then that goes to a blend file. And then then you version each of those elements individually. So, and then everything else, I split out into a, a, um, a JSON file, the 
JSONs, actually used a lot in, in web format stuff, and it's actually really great for this. So I spit all the data, all the numeric and textual textual data, that all goes into a JSON file. And those binary blobs, the sort of the path relative to that JSON file is stored in there as well. Then my JSON files version, if something changes there, I can quickly see a diff between, you know, I, I take my material specularity and I, uh, Blender internal as opposed to cycles for the time being. Uh, so if, my, if I change my material specularity from 0.5 to 0.75, that gets stored in the JSON file and a diff shows up like that. You know, I can I can see it immediately. That system I have it, it currently it does that. It works. The problem I have with it is that on large large Blender files, uh, I think the way that I wrote it was a little bit stupid. So with large Blender files, disk I/O when you tear that uh, blend file apart is is makes things prohibitively slow when trying to do a commit. So that's an issue I'm still trying to work my way through, but uh, I'm excited to see that happen. But I'd like to have more creative tools have that kind of uh, integration with their, their, their version control. So, for instance, you, know, you can do diffs between images. It's not that hard to do. Uh, as, as, as a separate data point. So it'd be nice if I could hook GIMP, for instance, into Mercurial. And when I do a... Uh, Mercurial has a external diff extension so that you can use another program to, to give you a diff. Uh, actually, you can do this with ImageMagick. So it's I don't need to use GIMP. There's actually a way to do this with ImageMagick where you take images from what the, the current working image and diff it with the previous revision and so you can see which which pixels changes and, and those those sort of things it's and again you can do that with image magic and it's, it's actually kind of a nice way of doing it um, i recently for my writing set that up with LibreOffice to do almost exactly the same thing so i i do all my my writing for my books and whatnot in LibreOffice. um it, it's what I'm comfortable writing in. I, I like to have a little bit of formatting. Styles in particular are, are a huge benefit so that I have header styles. And, and in any case, LibreOffice has, has writer, writer's a word processor, word processor's for writing. And it, it's, it's kind of the right tool for the job. Problem, of course, is that unless you say so, the uh, files that LibreOffice saves, the ODT files, are binary files. So we run into the same thing. Now, the cool thing is that LibreOffice has a compare documents feature built into it. You go to edit, compare documents, and you can choose two documents, and you can see the difference between the between the two of them. Everything from, and it basically looks as if you were tracking changes on a single document, and you'd see them as revision marks. It's really, really kind of sweet. Problem is, that feature is not accessible from the command line. So if there happen to be any LibreOffice developers uh, listening to the, my podcast, this is my feature request and plea. Please make the compare documents feature accessible from the command line. It would make my life fantastic. Because right now what I have to do is there's a utility called ODT to TXT. And I can use that. Uh, I, can, I can use ODT to TXT wrapped with a, I believe it's a Python script. I need to double check that. But it's a Python script called OODIF. I use OODIF as my my diffing tool in Mercurial. I set that to the the uh, external diffing tool, and I can use OODIF 
which basically takes the last revision of my, my ODT file and my current revision of the ODT file, converts them to TXT files, and then diffs those. And I mean, that works for pure content, but if I say only changed formatting, like I made one part of the text italics and another part bold or, or those sort of things, that kind of information doesn't get shown with this workflow. It does get shown with the, the compare documents feature in, in LibreOffice. So I really, really, really would like to have uh, command line access to LibreOffice because then I could use LibreOffice as my diff, my external diff tool and material and it would be just the sweetest thing in the world. Uh, in any case, I'll, I'll definitely put in a, a link in the show notes showing how I do that with uh, ODT to TXT and OODIF to, uh, to do that. Blender Workbench, that's going to be a, <laughs> that'll be a little bit longer. Long story short, if you're doing, if you're doing creative work, you're going to want to use version control. And I personally use Mercurial, but get, if, 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 if you don't have to work with Windows people, Git works perfectly fine. If you're working on a project that's inherently collaborative and you need a central repository, then Subversion is going to work great. Because the one of the things from a code development standpoint that people like about Mercurial and Git because they're distributed is that it's easier to do sort of side development branches and, and those sort of things while you're working on a project. When you're doing creative work, branching isn't, at least the way that I use it, I don't use a lot of branches to, to work on work on my project. So that particular feature is not something that I, I have a huge need for. So that's why, why if you're doing something that's inherently collaborative, that isn't code-based, Subversion may be the best tool for the job. Otherwise, like I said, I, I like I like Mercurial. It's, uh, it suits my needs really, really nicely. So yeah, that's that's my uh, that's today's main topic. And that's my that's my rant. Quick tips. Well, let's see if I let's see if I can think of three. First one, I actually tweeted about this earlier this week, um, and I, I, I stumbled across. As with many great discoveries, you find them by fat fingering the keyboard, as I did. And uh, I was working in Firefox. I was working on my website for this podcast. Uh, well, that my website that, among other things, hosts this podcast, and fat fingered the hotkey control shift m yeah don't ask how i hit that on accident but in any case if you hit control shift m from within firefox it actually gives a view of the website as if you were looking at it through a mobile device which is really excellent for me because then i don't have to while i'm developing pull out my phone or pull up pull out my tablet and uh stare at it that way, I can actually just check it from within Firefox. I mean, that gives me, of course, just the Firefox view of, of it, but at least lets me set my dimensions right and, and those sort of things. So that was a really useful hotkey that I discovered there. There's unfortunately not that I could find an equivalent to that in Chrome. So if anybody who's listening does see that shortcut or does know of a similar sort of viewing mode in Chrome or Chromium, or preferably Chromium, uh, let me know, and I'll, uh, I'll 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 be very grateful because that just means one less thing for me to have to break out an extra device for testing on, at least initially. Always test your websites. I know. Go on the right device and check them out. Continuing with the website theme, uh, it seems that I I find myself 
getting involved in, in some form of web design and web development, it's like, a, it's like a perennial thing for me. It's like every six to nine months. And inevitably, every six to nine months, the landscape of web development and web, web design specifically changes. And there's new shit I got to learn. And which is great because new shit I get to learn, which is awesome. And in this case, because I was, I, I've worked with WordPress for years and years and years. And for the longest time, I've always, I've always coded my own themes. Um, just it's, I, I know how to do it and I like doing it. So that's what I've been doing. But this time I wanted to try and, you know, play with templates or frameworks or, or something. And I actually, I wanted something kind of bare. I wanted the ability to structure my site as I, as I wish and, and have sort of full theme ability customiz customization. But I wanted to somehow the, I wanted to have some of the nice underpinnings, a responsive, you know, responsive design underpinnings. I didn't, didn't want to develop them all by myself. So I was looking for a nice sort of kind of a bare bones theme and stumbled across of all things, the bones theme. The bones theme is actually not what I'm talking what I'm what I'm talking most about. It's I actually the bones theme uses something called SAS. It also uses less, uh, but SAS, which is here's here's my my raw definition of it. SAS is a CSS preprocessor uh, that's written in Ruby. So what you can do the the problem with with you know, with with all web design and web development, is that you're, you're going to run into browser incompatibilities, and it's the, the bane of any web designer's existence. And I hate it, and I don't know anybody who actually really enjoys it. But what you can do with SAS is pre-bake some of the SAS, and sort of combined with with Compass, and what you can do what, with those tools, you can have. You can have variables in your CSS. So if I have a link that's that's red, and when I when that link is hovered, I want it to be 10% darker. I can have variables, and we'll do the math on it, and and it's done. And it fills, and then you basically compile the SAS to regular CSS. So and then that CSS is what gets uploaded and used. And it's 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 fantastic. Oh, I I don't have to. I mean. Even if I have to do anything that's that's sort of a, a browser-specific hack on my own, I only have to do it once. And then I set that up as a mix-in or a variable or whatever, and then compile that into CSS, and everywhere where I use that mix-in or, or, or variable changes all at once. It's so fantastic. So if, if you happen to be involved in, in web design as part of your creative process, I really encourage you to take a look at SAS. There are a number of good tutorials about it, and um, it, I'm, I've been won over by it, and, and it makes me smile every time I see things, see it when I have to work with it. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll mark that as, as my, my three quick tips. One is, well, I'll do it in reverse, we'll say SAS, the Bones theme, which I'll just sort of include on that, and, oh, Control Shift M. So, three web design quick tips this this week. Yeah. So I've finished my commute. So I'm gonna end the show here. You guys have a good day. And use version control. Hello.
know, uh, you know that thing's liable to go off. Yeah, it could. Yeah, sweetheart.